My guest is Peter Kellner. Peter Kellner is the former president of the polling organization YouGov and is a visiting scholar with Carnegie Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Glad to be here, Paul. You were one of my first guests oh, eight years ago, so we've been, come a long way since then. Right, I thought we'd start, if you don't mind, with talking about the general election which is in the UK, which is expected sometime next year, and then we'll move on to uh, how the Labour Party makes use of polls and, and uh, focus groups to inform its, its policy making, and then finally, if we have time, your, your views on how you think the Labour Party should uh, engage with, with the European Union and Member States uh, in this sort of post-Brexit uh, world we're all living in. So first things first, what is your best guess about when the general election in the UK will take place next year? Well let's start with, with the rules Paul, it has to be held by law at the latest January 2025, Right. Um, but that would mean campaigning over Christmas and I can't imagine anybody would really want that. So unless for some odd reason they do go to the very very end the options are spring of next year, May, June, or autumn, October, November. Some people say they might well go in the spring. I doubt that because the polls at the moment are pretty steady, pretty large Labour lead, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. And unless the polls have moved significantly towards the Conservatives by, say, February, March next year, I, I can't see them going to the country having holding the election with Labour so far ahead. So I think the likeliest time is October, November, um, and then you get down to the kind of fiddly issues. Do they happen? Normal party conferences happen in September, October. Therefore, use that as a launch pad for a November election, or will they cancel the party conferences and and have the election in October. I mean, one thing I might add is, of course, that the American election is on November the 5th next year. And so for the, f the first time since 1964, it's very possible that the American and British elections will be held very close together. And in 1964, that was when Labour came to power after 13 years of Conservative rule. And it might be this time it's Labour coming to power after 14 years of Conservative rule. Well, you kind of tee up my, my next question is, I mean, you're probably grown and you must, when you hear it and you probably get asked this all the time by all your friends and contacts, what are the likeliest scenarios do you think next year? You know, in, in Westminster jargon we're talking about, is this 1964, is it 1992, is it 1979, is it 1997? That's kind of yeah. shorthand for different political outcome. What is your, what is your best guess of what's going to happen? Um, it's difficult to say exactly, Paul. Think of the options as a very shallow bell curve. You know, there is a sort of, there's a middle point to the prediction, which will be Labour on the edge of or just with a very small overall majority. But the tail on both sides is quite long. The fundamental thing about the next election is whether it produces a pro-conservative or an anti-conservative majority. And I say this because in Parliament there is one pro-conservative party, a conservative party. Right. Uh, there's maybe half a dozen of the Democratic Unions, the Northern Ireland uh, uh, Right of Centre Party, and they came to Theresa May's rescue uh, six years ago. But apart from that, there's nobody else in Parliament who would vote for a continuation of Conservative rule. Right. Whereas there's a whole galaxy <laughs> of anti-Conservative parties, the Labour Party most obviously, but the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish National Party, the Greens, Plaid Gymru, the Welsh Party, so you could end up 
with a situation in which the Conservatives are quite comfortably the largest party, but there is nevertheless an anti-Conservative majority in Parliament. So my judgment is that unless something completely extraordinary happens, my you, the last few years we've had Ukraine, we've had yeah. <laughs> pandemic, so can't, can't rule out extraordinary, but unless something really bizarre happens, I think there will be an anti-Conservative majority. I think the Conservative period of government will end. But whether you have a precarious Labour minority government with a second election in a year or so, all the way through to a clear Labour majority, which can govern comfortably for five years, that I find much harder to judge. Does that explain partially why the Labour Party, especially uh, Keir Starmer the, as leader, is still extraordinarily cautious and prudent about uh, any kind of complacency and telling his troops that they yeah. don't expect this to be a walk in the park? All oppositions, uh, when they're well ahead in the polls, uh, feel a bit twitchy, as it might not last. And what was it, uh, one of those uh, great comedy films is it, what gets you is the hope. Right. If you if you hope for something that doesn't happen, you're much more miserable than if you've never hoped for it in the first place. Um, and I remember in the run-up to 1997 when Tony Blair came to, to power after 18 years of Conservative rule, uh, he got very twitchy when there were Labour leads of, sort of 30, 40 points. Of course, he preferred to be ahead than behind, but I remember encountering uh, mid-campaign, and I had at that point the following day's poll, and I said there's a sort of 25 or 28 percent Labour lead, whatever it was. I said, oh dear, because in a way, he was what worried him was complacency, low turnout, Labour supporters saying, well, they're going with anywhere, I might as well stay at home. So they're always um, a, a, a bit nervous. But I think in addition, Keir Starmer, I think he's intrinsically, the Labour leader, is an intrinsically politically cautious man anyway. So there are sensible e electoral reasons, but I think they play to his psychology as well. Well, as a former president uh, of YouGov, you, you know a lot about polling. Um, what is your uh, take on how the current Labour Party and its leadership uh, uses uh, polls? All political parties use polls, obviously. They, they look at external polls, they do their own internal polling, and, and also specifically uh, focus groups. And it's a bit of an unknown quantity. Most people don't really know what focus groups are and how they operate and their influence on, on the, the thinking, specifically on the Labour Party's thinking. Right, well, we're all familiar with, with polls in all countries usually a thousand, maybe two thousand people. Sometimes if there's a very special reason you do a much larger sample. But you count the hits and you say it's 40% think this, 30% think that and so on. Focus groups are when you get typically eight, maybe ten people in a room uh, together for an hour and a half would be a typical focus group. And you go through talking about all sorts of issues. And what you're trying to get is the texture, the feel, the language of what ordinary people are, are, are thinking and saying, which you don't always get from uh, polls with very precise questions, right. yes, no, in or out, approve, disapprove, whatever. And they use various techniques, something's very straightforward, you know, what do you think of the best things or worst things about Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, and you just find out what people say in their own terms about that. But sometimes you, you, they use pro projective techniques. If the Conservative Party were a car. What car would it be right. if the Labour Party were a car? So, you know, when Labour was in trouble you know, 20, 30 years ago, they would say, 
the Conservative Party is, is a Mercedes, right. um, but the Labour Party is is a, a, a an old banger, a second-hand right. mini or if it were in Germany <laughs> Trabant. Right. You know, um, uh, often projective techniques to get beneath know the surface of what people think. A lot of that goes on, but at the moment, what Labour is concentrating on are what it calls hero voters. These are the voters who will really decide the election. Um, they're people who typically who used to be Labour but went over to the Conservatives at the last election which led to Labour being heavily defeated, Brexit being one of the reasons uh, for this. Um, they're the voters that Labour is desperate to get back and the point about the hero voters is their values tend to be more on the left than the right. They're not, in other words, they're not normally um, keen Conservatives but because of um, Brexit in particular, and the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was then the leader of the Labour Party, who was uh, very left-wing, uh, were, were put off the Labour Party. And they used both polls, the numbers, and the focus groups to try and get their handle on what the so-called hero voters are saying and thinking. You may be a bit biased given your former career, but is a danger that political parties, and the Labour Party in particular, can be over-reliant on polls and especially focus groups and, and what findings come out of those things? I'm not sure, Paul, I'd say over-reliant. I think there is a danger, and one actually I think sees it at the moment, that they misinterpret polls. Right. So at the moment, the, uh, we're recording this during the Conservative Party conference where Rishi Sunak is, is junking the, the, the northern half of HS2, the, the high-speed railway, was going to be built in the last couple of weeks. He's, he's softened policy on, on net zero, the, the environmental, the climate change policy, to put back some of the um, deadlines for right. changing the kind of cars that can be sold and, and so on. And my guess, I have no inside information, but it looks to me as if they found from their polls and focus groups that these are policies that people think should be changed. Here's the problem. Um, the way people vote, and in particular the way floating voters, the ones who are liable to change party, right. the people who don't have a clear, fixed, solid tribal. political view, not tribal, they tend to be people who don't follow politics that closely, and they normally make up their minds, not so much on policies, but on the character of the party and its leader. Are they competent? Are they honest? Are they tough? Are they on my side? Will they stay the course? Will they keep their promises? And so you can get to a situation, and I think the Conservatives may be falling into this trap at the moment, of um, parading policies which their polls and focus groups tell them people like, but because these new policies involve changing their minds, are they looking a bit weak? Are they looking as if they, you can't trust them to keep their promises? Yeah. Um, are they competent? This is a particular problem with immigration, where the public liked our policies, but we're seeing immigration higher than ever. So the government gets quite high marks for its policy on immigration, but very low marks for the execution, for the competence of that. Um, so I think sometimes politicians of all parties uh, are deceived because they think policy attitudes are all that matter. You know, a few years ago, if policies only counted, we would have Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister and Nigel Farage, the <laughs> uh, pro-Brexit leader of, of the UK Independence Party, 
they would be probably prime minister and leader of the opposition. Mm -hmm. Because if you go, go down a checklist of their policies, they were very popular. But guess what? They're nowhere near power or, or, or major political role in the modern party system because they don't have the character in the minds of most voters to be trusted to do the job to be tough and, and all the rest of it. Well, as you know, it's very much a received wisdom, isn't it, that the Labour Party's stance on, on, on the European Union, I not just not rejoining, but not even membership of the single market or customs union against a free movement of individuals, is based on, on a lot of polling, just the fact that Brexit is still something that people think has to be done, and therefore we quote-unquote suicidal for the Labour Party, in this, especially now in this critical period running up to a general election, to, to show any signs of any kind of particularly uh, close rapprochement with the European Union. Is that a fair assessment? Well, there's something curious going on here, because um, a question that you got my own company, which I've now left, has been asking you know, two or three times a month ever since the referendum seven years ago. Do, will we right or wrong to vote to leave the EU? Over the first few months, the answer was roughly in line with the referendum result, a narrow majority saying we're right to leave. And then about a year, 18 months in, it started to tip over. And today, the, the latest YouGov polling is in the region of around 32, 33% saying we were right to leave, around 55, 56% saying we were wrong to leave, but the rest saying don't know. Um, and when YouGov and other companies asked if there were a referendum now, would you vote to rejoin the EU or not? It's around 55, 45, maybe slightly wider. Not a huge, but a clear majority saying we should go back in. So you think, why are none of the major parties, not just Labour and Conservative, but the Liberal Democrats, yeah. historically yeah. a very pro-European party, why are none of them saying we should rejoin? And the reason is that what a majority really wants, in my judgment, is to pretend Brexit had never happened, to <laughs> turn the clock back right. to what it was before the referendum. But that's not on offer. If we were to apply to rejoin the uh, European Union, there would be months, years of negotiation. Mm. We probably wouldn't have the same terms we had before. We had a rebate on our financial contribution each year. We could stay outside the Schengen zone. We could stay outside the, um, the, the single currency, mm. the euro. And if Britain were to go back in, there will be some pretty tough negotiations. And it's by no means clear that the public would then stay the course in wanting to rejoin. So to that extent, I think the parties are wise to be wary of those polls. But where I think Labour in particular is missing a trick. There's clearly a, a strong feeling that Brexit has been a failure. It's been bad for Britain's economy. The public, I think, broadly, instinctively line up with the economists who say that our economy is now 4 or 5% smaller than it would have been had we stayed in the EU. And when um, you ask people which is more important, policies that would increase economic growth, even if this means going back to abiding by European rules and regulations, or is it more important that Britain retains its freedom of action, even if there's an economic cost to this, by quite a clear majority, people would say prosperity matters most and we're prepared, prepared to go back and to accept European rules on workers' rights, on product standards, right. food safety, the environment, and so on. And so I'm slightly surprised that neither Labour nor the Liberal Democrats are being more ambitious 
in a programme of at least closing the gap between Britain, between London and Brussels? Well, clearly the overriding concern of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, is to win back these famous red wall seats right in the UK and in the north and the, in the Midlands that they lost to the Conservative Party the last general election, 2019. But is there a danger that in doing so they, they, that they're guilty at the very least of taking for granted uh, the pro-European electorate, uh, people are pro-European anyway, and that people are more importantly pro-European maybe and, and lifelong Labour supporters? I think this is a, this is a real risk uh, for Labour because although the Liberal Democrats are not much bolder than Labour on Europe, they're a bit bolder. And the Green Party, uh, which is I mean, very small, it has one MP only, but it picks up you know, once two million votes at, at, at elections. Right. Uh, in, in a, in a, you know, if we had the German voting system, the Greens would probably have 20 or 30 members of, of, of Parliament. Under the British system, they, they only have one. And here's the thing, I think there are quite a lot of young people voters in their 20s who've never voted when there's been a Labour government, who are not tribally Labour, who are progressive, who are pro-European, who feel strongly about climate change. And I think there's a real risk for Labour that some of these will vote Liberal Democrat or Green because they want much more ambitious policies on both Europe and, and on, on climate change. And this won't mean we'll have many more Green or Lib Dem MPs than you would otherwise, but it might mean in all those seats where Labour needs to take off the Conservatives, you could well have a, a number of seats where the Conservatives hold on with a majority locally of 500, 1,000, 1,500, where you have 2,000 people voting Green rather than Labour, and that means the Conservatives hold those seats. If those Green voters had supported Labour, Labour would win the seat. So yes, uh, I think there is I wouldn't say it would make a difference to dozens of seats, but in a close election it could make a real difference. So you just said any, any discussion about possible future, maybe very far in the future, discussion about rejoining the EU would be protracted, tortuous, painful, all the above. Uh, but in terms of being part of the single market and rejoining, if you like, the single market, customs union, uh, accepting free movement. Um, is that potentially on the cards, do you think, if in the event of a Labour government, we can't say too much now for fear of scaring the horses, but once, uh, if Kistan were to become the next Prime Minister within a year, uh, he would slightly modify, I'm using my words euphemistically, his European stance? This, Paul, you put your finger on, I think, the biggest single question about a, a possible Labour government. Will they, in government, be bolder than they are in opposition? I think if you were to give Starmer a truth drunk now, <laughs> he would stick to the current line. Uh, I don't think there is a, sort of a secret plan to join the, rejoin the single market of the customs union and he's just waiting for the election to be over before he can unveil the secret. I don't think that's the position at all. But let me, a little lesson of history. Britain first applied to join the then common markets in the early 60s. Harold Miller, Conservative Prime Minister. De Gaulle, the French leader, vetoed that. Right. And the, the year after De Gaulle's veto, sorry, and Labour at that point had uh, actively opposed the application to join. So we come to the 1964 general election, and the Labour manifesto says it was, it was a mistake uh, to, to apply. The Conservatives were sold, nearly sold us down the river. Labour's priority in foreign policy is the Commonwealth. Haraldson narrowly wins the election. Only narrowly, and because it was a narrow victory, 
was another election 18 months later in 1966. What's in Labour's manifesto in 1966? Well, Western Europe, it says, is divided between two trading blocks, uh, uh, the common market and EFTA. Labour believes they should come together and, and we would, at an appropriate time, apply to join the common market while looking after the Commonwealth as well. So there, and I don't think Wilson, as it were, in 64, knew he would have to change. Right. I think being in government and seeing the reality and Labour did face economic headwinds at the time. He came to the conclusion in government that Labour had to shift its position on Europe. So I don't think Keir Starmer currently has any intention of applying to join the Customs Union single market rejoin. But you know, events may force him that way just as they forced Harold Wilson that way uh, six decades ago. Okay, well we have to leave it there. Fascinating stuff. Peter Kerner, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure.